Really? Good morning. There we go. If you have your copy of God's Word, please flip over to Luke chapter 22. Luke chapter 22, beginning in verse 24 this morning for our text today. Luke chapter 22, beginning in verse 24. The greatest and the garden. Beginning in verse 24, our reading for this morning. And there arose also a dispute among them, the disciples, as to which one of them was regarded to be the greatest. And he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those who have authority over them are called benefactors. But it is not this way with you, but the one who is the greatest among you must become like the youngest, and the leader like the servant. For who is greater, the one who reclines at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at the table? But I am among you as one who serves. You are those who have stood by me in my trials. And just as my father has granted me a kingdom, I grant you that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom. And you will sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And you, when you once again are are turned, strengthen your brothers. But he said to him, Lord, with you, I'm ready to go both to prison and to death. And he said, I say to you, Peter, the rooster will not crow today until you have denied me three times that you even know me. And he said to them, when I sent you out without money belt and bag and sandals, you did not lack anything, did you? And they said, no, nothing. And he said to them, but now whoever has a money belt is to take it along. Likewise, also a bag and whoever has no sword is to sell his coat and to buy one. For I tell you, that which is written must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors. And that which refers to me, it has its fulfillment. And they said, look, here are two swords. And he said to them, it is enough. And he came out and he proceeded, as was custom, to the Mount of Olives. And the disciples also followed him. And when he arrived at the place, he said to them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. He withdrew from them about a stone's throw and he knelt down and he began to pray, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. Now, an angel from heaven appeared to him, strengthening him and being in agony. He was praying very, very fervently and his sweat became like drops of blood falling down upon the ground. When he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping from sorrow. And he said to them, why are you sleeping? Get up and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you for this text today. Father, for this agony that our Lord experienced in the garden, for his prayer, both for himself and for those that would come after him. Father, for these events that eventually turn the corner to our Lord Jesus Christ moving toward crucifixion and resurrection and ascension current intercession for us. Father, this great dark day we sang about a moment ago, this great darkness, this great demonstration of human rebellion, and yet simultaneously, this great demonstration of your salvation for us. Father, may we glean some insights from the actions of the disciples and from the love and the compassion of Jesus Christ as we long to be like him. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. This morning, we're looking at the issue of the greatest in the garden. 
Beginning in verse 24, there was a dispute about greatness that was had among the disciples. Now, I want to make a few contextual things clear as we start to walk through this, because you may not have been with us last time or you may have slept at least twice since then and have forgotten. Um, But this is right on the heels of the establishment of what we call the Lord's Supper. The story that Luke is about to tell about a dispute about which of the disciples is greatest in the kingdom of God happened right after Jesus warned them that one of them was going to betray him and they weren't sure who it was because all of them could be potential candidates. So they were all aware of the darkness and the hardness of their own hearts. They were all deeply concerned and troubled for their own souls that they might be the one to portray the Lord Jesus. He had just established for them what we call the Lord's Supper, an extension and a greater fulfillment of the picture of the Passover. He being the sacrificial lamb, the bread from heaven being represented by the bread on the table, the crushing of the weight of sin under the wrath of God being represented by the cup, the establishment of a new covenant and a persistent warning to them to guard their hearts. And the very next thing that happens is they have an argument about which one of them is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Now, before we wag our accusatory fingers at the disciples and proudfully boast in our own hearts that I would never do such a thing, recognize that that feeling that you just had of superiority to the disciples is now you arguing whether or not you are the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. This is a human condition. This is the tendency of the human heart to elevate itself far beyond where it should be. And friends, as we continue in this passage this morning, we will see that the transition of this for the Lord Jesus Christ toward the cross happens in a garden. This is not an accident. This is by intentional design. Jesus has been going back to this garden every night after teaching in the temple every day. Aware that he will be betrayed, aware that he will be turned over to his enemies. He intentionally places himself in a garden every night for the opportunity of his betrayal to take place. This is full of significance. Because, friends, it was originally in a garden that human beings ask, can we not be the greatest in the kingdom? It was in a garden in Genesis chapter 3 that we were brought with a temptation. Jesus warns them against temptation here in just a moment. We were brought with a temptation to be greater than God, to elevate ourselves to the highest place in the kingdom, a place that we should never have. And it is in a garden that Jesus warns them about this contingent issue of trying to be greater than they should be. And so this is right after the establishment of the Lord's Supper. It's a demonstration of how hard the human heart actually is. And so Jesus begins teaching his disciples and he says the Gentiles have a similar issue. Now, when Jesus mentions Gentile here, he's not speaking so much about race and ethnicity as he is teaching about religious perspective. The pagan nations, the nations that have not embraced the true covenant of the of of God, the ones who have not come under 
the sway of Yahweh, the sway of Jehovah, those who have not embraced the belief that there is one true God and that he is interacting with his people. These have an establishment of lording it over them, having benefactors. That's an interesting word in the Greek. It's used in a lot of different contexts, but it carries with it the idea of having dominion over someone else. And Jesus says, this is not the way it is with you. And why isn't it that way with you? Because Jesus is saying it hasn't been that way with me toward you. He says there is a new way to be great in the kingdom. And it's not through dominion. It's not through the exercise of personal power or authority. The new way to be great is to be like the youngest in other tellings of the story. It's to be like a child. It's to be like a servant. And then he asks a very practical question. He says, who is the greatest? The one who's sitting at the table, the one who owns the house, the one who's an invited guest, the one who is commanding the servants, the one who is being fed, the one who's being served, or the one who is serving the table? Who is the greatest? And clearly the answer is the one who's seated at the table, not the one who's serving the table. And Jesus says, yet I have come and I have served you. Everybody knows these guys knew Jesus was greater than them. It's very obvious that Jesus was greater than. They could do none of the things they could do until Jesus empowered them to do so. And even some of the things that Jesus did, they were still incapable of doing. He was obviously sent from heaven. They had made this declaration. They had abandoned everything to follow him. And he said, yet, even though I am greater than you, I am serving you. I am giving you an example of what greatness really is. Greatness is not about lording authority over people. Greatness is about serving others and meeting their needs. And he said, my father has given me a kingdom. And I am granting that you have a place in my kingdom. You will be able to sit there and you'll be able to eat there and you'll be able to drink at the table. You'll be able to be seated upon the thrones. Friends, this morning, we need to be warned in our hearts. We need to be challenged in our hearts that we still have a tendency To want to be greater than we ought to be. We have a longing to be better than. Many of the great ills that we face in our world that express themselves in various forms. All manner of lack of wisdom and sinning that occurs on this earth, occurs from a strong, pride-filled, faithless desire to be other than what we ought to be. To place ourselves and our needs first and foremost and preeminently, rather than the needs and the concerns and the well-being of the other. Throughout the scripture, from front to back, it calls upon the human person To look at those outside of themselves as greater than themselves, as more valuable than themselves, more needy than themselves, and worthy to be served, even at great sacrifice to the self. Friends, this is contrary and counter to almost every other religious perspective that has ever existed. 
This is not the way politics works. This is not the way rising social standards work. This is not the way finding your way and establishing your domain and, 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 and climbing the great corporate ladder, so to speak. None of it works that way. You won't take one class in business that's not from a Christian perspective that tell, or politics or any other thing where they're trying to get you ahead that says, you know what you ought to do? Make as little of yourself as you possibly can. Not usually on the test. It's not usually on the test. And Jesus says, this is the way to be great. If you want to dispute greatness, then dispute service to others. And so Jesus then turns the corner and he makes a profession of greatness. What greatness really looks like when it works itself out in the world. And he speaks directly to Simon. And he says, Simon. Behold, Satan has demanded or depending on your translation, made a request Asked for permission to sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. So Satan has asked permission. This is similar to the picture that we have in that wonderful story in Job where Satan comes into the council of the heavenly places and he asks God's permission to bring an assault against his, against Job. You know, he says, he's got, what have you been doing? Going to and fro. God actually recommends Job. Have you considered my servant Job? I can't touch him. You're protecting him. He said, all right, well, do whatever you want to to him, but just don't take his life. This is wedged in here, I believe, because this conversation is about greatness. And often in the Christian worldview, we have a misnomer of how good and evil works in our world. We have a far eastern view of good and evil, a balancing act of the yin and the yang, a, a, a balancing act of this eternal tug of war between that which is evil and that which is good. And, and I've even errantly heard wonderful preachers that I love. Say ridiculous things like, well, God has casted a vote for you and Satan has casted a vote against you and you must cast the deciding vote. Nonsense. Please don't believe that sort of thing. It's far Eastern Buddhism. It's not Christianity. Satan is not great. You know what he has to do? He has to ask for permission to act in God's world. Peter, Simon, Satan has asked to do this thing to you. Not great. Satan's not great. But I, the Lord Jesus Christ, I have prayed for you. That's great. Greatness. The power of divine intercession. Satan wants to destroy you, Peter. But I am not going to let him greatness. He said, you want to have a conversation about who's the greatest? I'll show you who's the greatest. The greatest known evil force that exists in the universe had to ask permission to do something to you. And I'm not going to allow it to take place. If you guys want to have a chat about who the greatest is, let me explain to you just briefly from a spiritual perspective what this really looks like. There's a reason why Luke has wedged this story in here. 
is because they're having a dispute about who the greatest in the kingdom is. He said, you want to know who the greatest in the kingdom is? I am the Lord Jesus Christ. So great, in fact, that your greatest enemy has to ask permission of me to do anything to you and I can grant it or deny it. And I have denied it. You're going to turn out on this. Okay. It's going to be rough. It's going to go bad, but you're going to be all right. Why? Because I have said so. This is a remarkable display display of Jesus's profession of his own greatness. Now, Peter still missing the point in classic Peter way. I'm so glad that Peter is in the Bible. I mean, if it were just amazing people like Jeremiah, who, you know, got discouraged, but then had this fire in his bones, wants to keep preaching, even though he watched the whole city burn around him. Or if it was remarkable people like Ezekiel or Isaiah or even Paul to an extent, you know, I would be somewhat discouraged reading Bible stories. Be like, I'm not like these guys, but I'm an awful lot like Peter. I resonate with Peter. You know, he enters a room with his foot already in his mouth as loudly as he possibly can. I get it. I get where he's coming from. And Peter, missing the point that he's not the greatest, that Jesus is the greatest, says this in response. Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Well, I guess he's still vying for greatest in the kingdom. In other words, I'll do anything for you. I'll do anything for you. And Jesus, in his predictive power, says, I say to you, Peter, the rooster will not crow today until you have denied three times that you even know me. Not great. We're having a conversation about greatness. And they're having a dispute about which one of them is the greatest. And Jesus says, I'll tell you the greatest. I am the greatest. And Peter, missing the point, tries to piggyback onto that greatness. Keep some of that greatness for himself. I'll do anything. It's a lot of great bold talk when you're hiding in a room just having had supper. The modern version of that are all the uh, social media warriors hiding behind their keyboards at their house. A lot of real big talk about what we would do and not do in the safety of our home behind our keyboard. Real different kind of thing when you come face to face with it and push comes to, to shove. I had a friend of mine who served in the military and been to war, active war. Many of you have had this experience as well. And during some recent things where people kept taking social media opportunities to post all of the, the, their strong willingness to be great patriots and to fight against the tyranny that they felt that they were experiencing uh, personally in their lives. He just finally got fed up with it. And see, so he posted a, a meme with a picture from a classic war movie of someone drenched in blood, clearly having won a very vicious battle. And across the top, it said, everyone is willing to do Patriot stuff until it's time to do Patriot stuff. 
It's real easy when you're hiding in the safety of an upper room, just having had a Passover meal, had the establishment of the Lord's Supper, and everything's real quiet and peaceful for Jesus to point out what's really going down, to stand up and say, I'll do anything, Jesus. I'll go to prison for you. I'll go to, I'll die for you. I'll do whatever it takes. And Jesus looks across the table at Peter, still trying to bolster this sense of greatness. And he says to him, Peter, you're going to deny that you even know who I am before this night's over with. Like, you're not even going to be willing to acknowledge that you know me before this night's over with. He's telling Peter, Peter, you are not great. And friends, that's a hard thing for us to swallow because we desire to have this sense of value and worth. Friends, listen, Jesus telling us that in the scheme of the kingdom of God, we are not great is not the same as Jesus telling us that we have no value. That's the problem with our cultural mindset is that if someone denies our supposed sense of greatness, we equate that with, well, they're devaluing me. No, Jesus valued these men enough that he was about to die on the cross that they might have their sins forgiven. That he just told them, I'm preparing a seat for you in my kingdom to eat at my table and to sit on a throne as kings. That's not devaluing. But right now, in this moment, you are not great. You are weak. And you are frail, you're fragile, and you will be easily broken. And you must guard your heart because you are not ready. And Jesus reminds them of a previous time where they had done ministry. And he says, do you remember the former times? Do you remember when I sent you out and you didn't take anything with you? You didn't have a money bag. You didn't have a belt. And you had need of nothing. Everywhere you went, your provisions were met. And they were, yes, yes, we remember. We absolutely remember. We, we, We want it for nothing, even though we left with nothing. And Jesus says, right now, it needs to be different from that. This time, you need to make sure that you've got your money belt with you. Make sure that you take your bag and your extra supplies with you. And if you don't have a weapon, you better go sell your coat and buy one. This really frustrates those who are extreme pacifists when it comes to the teaching of of Jesus' language here. Because he's strongly encouraging these men to arm themselves. Now, I'm not going to turn this into an armament conversation. Second Amendment was... 2,000 years away from being written by the time this was said. So this has nothing to do with that. So we're not even attempt to tie that into this. But Jesus was saying, listen, ministry is not always done the same. Preparations for ministry are not always the same. Sometimes is dictated by context. And this thing that's about to go down right now, you need to make sure that you are physically prepared because your needs probably aren't going to be met by people like they were the last time. Because after this thing gets ready to go down, his crucifixion is what Jesus is talking about. It's going to be really hard for you to get by. It's going to be dangerous. And there's not going to be a lot of people longing to meet your needs like they did when we were healing the sick and casting out demons and doing all of those things that met their felt needs. That's not happening right now. They are going to hate you. So you need to make sure that you're ready. And implicitly, without saying it explicitly to them, the point he's also making is, and I won't be here to take care of you. 
because, friends, he's about to die. And then after he's raised, he's about to leave. They will not have the physical presence of Jesus with them much longer. And so they move to the garden. And the greatness of God's plan makes itself known. In verse 39, it says they came out and they proceeded as was discussed in the Mount of Olives and the disciples followed him. So they're in this garden. It's a beautiful garden, by the way. I've been there before. Lovely. Covered with olive trees. Lots of places for isolation and quiet. And when he arrived at the place, he said to them, you need to pray that you will not enter into temptation. Pray against temptation. Friend, hear me this morning. There's a lot of things in the Christian faith that we deem to be acts of greatness. We hear stories of missionaries going to unreached places and facing great hardships and making great sacrifices. And we say, oh, what great act of spiritual activity. What a great exercise. Faith. We hear about people maybe who have done exceptional preaching or great pastoral ministry or some other great act that we view from our perspective as an act of greatness. Friends, in the Christian life, greatness is not measured by the external result. It's not on objective measures. It's not a flow chart that shows what greatness looks like in the Christian faith. There's not like monthly quotas to reach to, well, I was excellent this month, but I was great the next one because I hit my next, you know, I hit my, and I don't know if they still call them this in the business world or not, but back, way back in the day, they used to call ours KPIs, key performance indicators. How are you doing with your objective measures and your key performance indicator? Have you reached what, you know, you had this many last time, you had this many this time. Was there an increase? What was the percentage increase? Did you move from good to great? Like what did the, this is not how the Christian life works. The true demonstration of greatness in the Christian life is this here that Jesus is declaring. Pray that you may not enter into temptation. What is that a call to? True greatness in the Christian life is acknowledging weakness and dealing with that weakness head on by faith and repentance. I must turn away from my desire to be great, my desire to be strong, all of the things that I've deceived myself about in the city of man, and I must trust that what God says of me is true, that I am weak, that I am fragile, that I am broken, that I am needy, and I must move toward the cross of Jesus Christ. I must move toward the city of God. I must recognize that left to myself, I am a sheep in the wilderness that will be consumed by a wild beast, that there is an enemy, a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. And I must cling to the power of the cross. We sang about it this morning. 
I must acknowledge my weak estate and I must trust the strength of the Lord Jesus Christ. Friends, that is true greatness in the Christian faith. It's not what you do. It's trusting the one who does it for you. And acknowledging that I need his help in all things. That's true greatness. And so Jesus, when they get to the garden, demonstrates for them once again by praying and calling out to the Lord, calling out to God. Father, your will be done. That's greatness. That's greatness. And Jesus asks the Lord in this moment. And really, we could spend a couple of weeks on this, but we're just going to spend a few moments today. He goes off by himself and he prays, Father. Remove this cup from me. Remove this cup from me, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. What is the cup? There's been a lot of debate. I'm just going to take a minute. The best theological understanding of what Jesus is praying about. Is he is moments away from being turned over to the authorities. He is moments away from moving toward the cross. And friends, it is not the nails. It is not the crown of thorns. It is not the beating that he will receive. It is not the mocking. It's not the scourging. It's not the physical pain that is wounding the heart of Jesus deeply right now. He is looking at what is about to take place from the human perspective. The human Jesus is looking at what's about to happen and he is about to receive. Remember what the cup this is off the heels of the establishment of the Lord's Supper. We must use the cup language that Jesus is praying about here and tie it back to what we just heard. What is the cup in the supper? It is the bearing forth of the wrath of God in a blood sacrifice that those who are under God's wrath may be forgiven. Jesus is looking in this cup and he is seeing the fullness of God's wrath against sin. He, the sinless one, is about to receive the full brunt and penalty and fury of the wrath of God for his people that they might live and looking as a human being, not as the second person of the Trinity, looking as a faultless, sinless, not son of Adam, human being into the fullness of the divine wrath of God. Is there some other way? Is there some other way? But not my will, but your will be done. That is greatness. That's what that is. 
this is about to be the most awful experience that I will have in my human existence. I will receive in my person the full brunt of the wrath of God for the people that he will forgive and cause to be become citizens of his kingdom. And I will drink down this this wrath, this angst, this fury against sin, sin that I do not have. I will be the one who knew no sin and become sin. I will take their sins in my own body and God will pour his wrath out on me just like the sacrificial lamb of the Old Testament, just like the scapegoat, just like the offering of atonement. I will be a an innocent substitute for those who are guilty and I will experience the full force of the hell-filled fury of God. Is there some other way? No, there's not. Not my will then. Your will be done no matter how much it pains me to do it. That is greatness. And these guys had the audacity like we do every day to dispute which one of us is the greatest in the kingdom. It's not me. And it's not you. This is greatness. And friends, as I mentioned before, it is important for us to note that the whole reason that this is having to take place is because there was a grand act of disobedience in a garden long, long ago. There were those who did not pray to be delivered from temptation, but rather opened their ear to it and listened to the voice of another and believed for a moment that they could be the greatest in the kingdom. And they abandoned the truth of the word of God and exchanged it for a lie. And their act of disobedience in a garden plummeted all of mankind into rebellion against the Most High. And now, in this moment, in this garden, there is the new Adam. And he is now looking at a choice like the first Adam was looking at a choice. And rather than saying, what I want, he said, not what I want, but rather what you want. I will do whatever you desire. And this great act of obedience overthrew the great act of disobedience all in a garden. And it's fantastic. It's incredible. And so Jesus gets up from this and he's ministered to by an angel and he's sweating drops of blood. He's overwhelmed by the grief of this moment. And he goes and he finds the disciples are asleep. Luke cuts them a little bit of slack that the other gospels don't. And explains to us that they're sleeping from sorrow, not because they're lazy, not because they're tired, not because they're worthless individuals, but because they're so overwhelmed with sorrow at some of the things that Jesus has been teaching them and pointing out to them about their lives and the realization of the pain of what's going on in this moment, how tense everything is, that they just, they can't stay awake any longer. And Jesus comes and he wakes them up. Why are you sleeping? Friend, you're not guarding your heart if you're asleep. You're not being on the alert 
if you were asleep, if you were fighting in a great warfare for the kingdom, you are not being great if you are asleep. Their posture right now demonstrates their weakness and their need and how foolish their question and their dispute was in the first place. And Jesus, why are you sleeping? And what is it when they wake up that he tells them to do for a second time? Get up and pray that you may not enter into temptation. You guys want it to be great. Then get up and be great. How can we be great in this kingdom? By getting on your knees and begging for strength from the king. We don't understand this language in American culture. Because we don't have kings. We scoff greatly at the idea of monarchs. Whole books were written around the time of the revolution about this. About the animosity that the Americans felt toward the concept of the divine right of kings. The divine right for someone to be the king. It's built into the DNA of our culture to be somewhat offended at the concept of an absolute monarch. Sort of why our country exists, actually. We demand representation if anything is going to happen to us. We demand that our voice be heard. Individual right is the declaration of the American culture. And politically, I think it's magnificent. I do. I think it's a great way to structure a society. It's got some flaws, but I think it's one of the better ways. If you don't think so, give Venezuela a try. See what you think. If they'll let you back out alive, you'll be glad to be back in America. I really promise you will. Go give old Russia a shot. See what you think. Maybe North Korea. Just sampling a few out there, you know. Some of our friends in West Africa right now, if you'd like the religious domineering feel of extreme Islam. Whatever you want to go with, you know. You could move to Chaz up in Washington if you wanted to, you know. Although they're starting to settle in, you know. They're starting to settle in. You know, they're creating a police force and trying to understand that they need labor to work to make money and that they need strong borders and they need to check immigration. It's, it's interesting how after about two weeks they've started to figure it out. It's kind of cool. But if you want to give it a shot, you can go to some places in the world where there's still totalitarianism, there's still absolute monarchy, there's still things like that. You can give it a shot. Good political vibe I think we have in America. I'm, just, I'm saying that because I know a lot of times people grab the pitchforks when I get ready to kind of slant against the American concept. But friends, as a Christian whose citizenship is not truly bound to any nation or kingdom of this world, but is bound to the kingdom of heaven, I must open myself to the true reality that I have a king. And what he says goes. And he is an absolute monarch. And he does not care about my opinion. And that when I'm engaging in things in his kingdom, I am absolutely weak and powerless without the aid of the king. And as an American, you just got to swallow that, friend, because that is Christianity. Jesus is not an elected official that has term limits. 
Amen and praise God. Yes. He is the same yesterday, today and forever. The King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. The Alpha and the Omega. The first and the last. The beginning and the end. And when he wakes these men up. And encourages them to greatness in the kingdom. Do you know what he encourages them to do? Pray that you may not fall into temptation. And we spend so much of our Christian lives doing everything but that. And we wonder why we feel so weak and so small and so defeated and so insignificant in our Christianity. It's because we're chasing after all the versions of greatness that do not exist. And we are shunning the things that Jesus himself has declared would actually make us great in the kingdom of God. One of the chief ones being acknowledging our weakness and our need of the king. Pray that you will not enter into temptation. Because friends, that's what caused us to fall from our state of greatness in the first place. Remember, it's all happening in a garden. Adam was walking around with God in the garden in the cool of the day. He was communing with him and speaking with him and enjoying his presence and fellowshipping with him as one who is older might do with his father. My relationship with my dad is vastly different now that I'm in my 40s than it was when I was in my single digits. There was this fatherly but mature relationship that Adam enjoyed. And there was no fear. And he looked God in the face. He was not ashamed of anything. He didn't guard himself against temptation. And being the image bearer of God on earth having dominion over all creation to the glory of God, he fell from that. And as Jonathan Edwards says in his magnificent sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, even now the barking of a dog at us displays that they despise us for being sinners. And so Jesus is reminding the disciples and by way informing us, do you want to be great in the kingdom of God right now? Yes. Yes, I do. I don't know how you feel today. I want to be great in the kingdom of God. I do. Jesus is playing to the pride that exists in all human beings. Do you want to be great in the? Yes. Please, no one tell yourself that. Weird. No, I don't want to be great. in the. Yes, you do. Don't lie to yourself. Yes, you do. Okay. Here's how it goes. Get on your knees and beg God to protect you from all the things that you cannot protect yourself from, which is everything. Because you're not the king. You're a servant. You're a subject. You're a citizen. And you need the king's protection. So beg and plead with the king to guard your heart. And when you do this, you will be great in the kingdom. 
You'll be great in the kingdom. So, well, Philip, when do I get to stop doing that? When glory comes. And there's no more temptation to sin. But until that day, you are a dying man. Declaring the glory of God to other dying men. You are a broken, wretched sinner. Declaring the grace of God to other broken, wretched sinners. You are one who has had a marring of the image of God. That can only be repaired by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you, if you are in Christ Jesus, are an invited guest. You did not belong there. He welcomed you in. And if you want to be great in the kingdom, you will stay in a constant state of awareness of your need of Jesus and the fact that you do not belong in his presence. He has graciously welcomed you in. Then and only then will you start to be great in the kingdom. Until then. You and I will continue to deceive ourselves. Putting on a pretend display of greatness. By the accolades given to us by others. By the sense of accomplishment we have in our deeds. Which matter not to God at all. What is it that God desires from us? King David says. A broken And contrite heart, you will not despise. That's what he longs to have from us. An acknowledgement of our neediness. Friends, that's greatness. Contrary to what everyone in the world tells you, that is greatness. And Jesus showed it to us in this garden. Overthrowing the work of our great father, Adam. In his garden all those years ago. Let's pray together. Father God, thank you. Thank you for the display of greatness that Jesus has given to us. By showing us that it is your will, not ours, that is to be done. That we needy, broken people must, must, must pray to be delivered from temptation. That we would not enter into it and live live lives of sin. That left to ourselves, we wander and we stray and we produce idols and we have hard hearts and we're rebellious and we're stiff-necked. God, by your grace and for your glory, teach us to pray broken prayers of our need. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I invite you to stand.